ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਬਾਬਾ ਜੀ ਕਾ ਖਾਲਸਾ ਵਾਹਿਗੁਰੂ ਜੀ ਕੀ ਫਤਿਹ ਕੈਨ ਯੂ ਹੀਅਰ ਮੀ ਕਲੀਅਰਲੀ ਆ ਕੈਨ ਹੀਅਰ ਯੂ ਕਲੀਅਰਲੀ ਬਟ ਡੈਮ ਇਟ ਆਵ ਹੈਡ ਸਮੋਸਾਸ ਟੂਨਾਈਟ ਪਕੋੜਾ ਸਮੋਸਾ ਓਕੇ yeah i mean i got to stop poisoning myself even though i'm not fat though but still i, I have to stop taking this poison it's like that tomorrow episode no you're just sitting sitting in your room and the smell of the pakora almost hits you and suddenly you start levitating <laughs> you just uh, hypnotically just uh, really gravitate towards the uh, the poison don't you <laughs> i mean you know most recently what i've been doing is that there is a youtube channel called dark simpsons you know the simpsons the cartoons yeah yeah the yellow family <clears throat> and what the creator of dark simpsons does is that this is a very talented individual or a talented team behind it they establish a narrative now dark simpsons this is actually a uh, simpsons as never never before so you got you know necrophilia you got serial murder you got all these things which are implied in these episodes so what happens is that they establish a narrative like what way they want to go so for example they have this uh this is going to be pretty graphic what i'm about to say so they have this part where uh, they have sniped and edited out all these parts from the you know simpsons shows that uh you have a whole seamless part which you can't tell has been edited together in which bart simpson is a serial killer and a necrophiliac okay and the thing is that uh you can't actually tell what the difference is unless you're quite familiar with the simpsons so unless you're a avid fan you've watched the simpsons you comprehend what the simpsons is you might be thinking that the simpsons is actually this very dark american tv show which is animated which is a horror show with a uh, nothing off limits it's platinum grade satire platinum grade setter but it's so the thing i'm thinking is that you know you have reality you have the simpsons which we know the real simpsons isn't dark it's about a i guess you would say a monochromatic family stuck in a monochromatic life it's tedious it's boring and they try you know doing things in a certain fashion which we find odd and which gives us you know time to laugh at them and it's just a outlet a humor show and i guess other than really young uh viewers obviously given that they do have sexual innuendos in the show itself it is something which we find very funny and the whole family can sit down together and watch it would you agree with that assessment i think i will so that is what i call reality now the person who creates the dark simpsons they take this reality they you know alter it altogether they're taking elements of reality to establish a parallel reality which in itself <laughs> is not reality not the real reality but at least when you first watch dark simpsons you actually do get confused because i mean personally speaking i actually thought the, these were uh, episodes which never made the cut and I was thinking which idiot came up with this for a you know a young viewer show a kids show which transformed into a teen young adult show but then when i researched further i realized that the guy who's doing this or you know the girl who's doing it they're pretty smart that individual is pretty smart hmm and they have created the perfect niche for themselves i mean i'm surprised that they haven't been attacked by the post structuralists yet 
<laughs> it's one of those things that that's like, uh, how do I say, too poisonous to touch? I believe it is too poisonous to touch. Some of these things are very, um, <laughs> quite, I would say, very off limits for even a you know common uh, conversation as we're having now. Anyhow, the point I wanted to make was how reality can be bent and twisted when half the facts are concealed. Well, not half. You could you know, tell, let's say, 95% reality and 5% could be your, your own agenda. But that 5% or even less than that, less than that is enough to make a huge difference down the line. That is, and that actually fits in with what we are discussing today, which is Sikh identity in academia, a, cat, a circus of catastrophes. A very appropriate title. And there is going to be quite a lot of uh, nuclear bombs released in this one, so I guess uh, you better get your uh, anti-tank goggles ready as well. We are going to jump straight into it, so... The way things go today is that, you know, we have a field of social sciences called Sikh studies, right? Yep. I mean, personally, being a Sikh, and this is an opinion which, you know, my circle shares as well, you, you can call us whatever you want and uh, believe whatever you want about us. None of us have so far in, you know, the 12 to 16 years we have been made aware about this field, Sikh studies, None of us have ever understood how these, uh, you know, academics and intellectuals who claim to be, you know, studying Sikhi, how they've contributed anything new to our current comprehension of our faith, how they've actually made a difference in our lives. We just don't know. What do you know? Not making a difference. They actually made it more confusing, actually. I mean, <clears throat> you know, Dr. Balwan Singh Tillo told me, and I think it was in the Banda episode as well, that... Uh, our so-called academics, our so-called historians, our so-called intellectuals, after 1999, they have consistently milked the few historic Sikh texts we have. And why I say Sikh texts is because they interrelate them with Sikhi because they were written by Sikhs. Now, what the persuasion of those Sikhs was, what their prejudice was, what their bias was, this is never actually fully uh, studied. Nonetheless, this doesn't prevent them from milking these texts further and further and further all over the place. I mean, at last count, Ratan Singh Pangu's Shri Gurpant Prakash, you know, one text from the 19th century recording what happened in the, you know, from the Guru era onwards to the Missile period and beyond. One sole text, one sole single chronicle from that period, and our lot and Sikh studies have probably published 8,000 papers, all repetitive, saying the same thing over and over again from this one text alone. And Such none of them, yep, none of them have contributed anything to understanding about Sikhi today and Sikhi in the past. Uh, such texts are, let's say, a perennial source of people whose business is religion. So there's actually no incentive to do some further research. Yep, I understand this. I understand this. And uh, see, getting into the gist of it is regarding, you know, Sikh identity in academia. What is Sikh identity in academia? First, we, in the 90s, you know, we had uh, Oberoi come over with his uh, 
construction of religious boundaries. You remember the conflict which broke out over that? Then we had Bashwara Singh with his MS uh, 1245 manuscript. We had uh, New Zealand's own and famous Professor MacLeod and uh, his continued attacks on the consistency and authenticity of the Sikh scripture. Now, come to think about it, all these uh, so-called intellectuals have been answered from time to time, except the current field of Sikh studies does not give them their due, uh, you know, uh, the current field of Sikh studies, what I mean is never looks at the refutations but rather holds these scholars to be some sort of a sacred cow. I mean, one of the guys I was uh, talking about, you know, Bashora Singh, I was actually talking with a friend of mine who's a historian, and he just uh, got pretty blatantly, uh, not angry, but quite upset. He's like, I've met the man. He's humble. You can't say this about him. And I told him, I'm not saying anything about him. But, you know, we have, you know, academics of blasphemy, a work which incorporates the rebuttals of over 200 scholars to Bashora Singh. You know, I'm not saying anything, but the... But the summary, the conclusion at the time, the outcome of their investigation, 200 scholars, was that Bashora Singh has fabricated evidence to argue that Guru Arjan and subsequently the Khalsa altered the Gurbani of Guru Nanak. And this, for this, he has no evidence. He has no authentic evidence. Isn't uh, asking for evidence counted as uh, being a... Uh let's say, an atheist or something? See, among Western students of Sikh studies, it has become commonplace to lambast directly or indirectly the so-called baneful. And I repeat myself once again, the so-called baneful, which is negative, effects of orthodoxy on Sikh scholars studying their own tradition unless they're post-structuralists. The caveat being, of course unless they're post-structuralists, who believe that reality belies the idea of fixed meaning, overturning, and therefore exposing the existence of the binary and destabilizing previously fixed categories of understanding. Now, what post-structuralism is that, this was actually a study uh, founded by Jacos to write. It's a philosophy that says that reality has no definition, no definitive meaning, and anything in reality cannot spawn you know, anything definitive. And post-structuralists have actually uh, come up with the decolonization movement, with post-modernism. And all these movements have loopholes in them because they're actually saying that there is no meaning to what we call reality. It's just an an alternate explanation. And this allows them to dismiss any text out of hand. I mean, Jacques Derrida, who actually founded this, uh, you know, philosophy, this movement, the man was an abject failure in his life. He failed his university entrance exam three times. I mean, uh, I think there was a recent uh, kahuna in the USA that uh, they actually uh, produced by obtaining his original school reports, his academic transcripts. And all of them say the same thing that, you know, he baits he bait the reader through the promise of something, but ends up delivering nothing. And hmm. I guess I'll compare it like this to a court case where, you know, suddenly someone says, oh, yep, here's the evidence, here's the knife. This is how, you know, the victim was stabbed and killed, and this is the culprit. And the culprit, you know, turns around and says that, you know, uh, does it matter that I stabbed the victim when life is going to be uh, <laughs> fragile, life is going to be ephemeral after all? Well, 
in the end, everybody's going to die, but that doesn't mean I'll allow somebody to kill me. Yep, and this is where post-structuralists will, you know, differ from you. Now, the post-structuralist sentiment would be acceptable in so far as mankind is able to control reality. That reality and not the comprehension or perception of reality becomes a byproduct of human effort. Obviously, though, there is no evidence that reality emanates from our collective efforts, or we can give our own reality a tangible form. So in light of this, what post-structuralism is essentially, what it emerges is as nothing more than sophisticated jargon prancing about as an academic discipline which has no tenets, no fundamentals, no principles. The touchstone of original context, original meaning, and originality is supplanted with nothing more than the argument that environment and not context shapes human effort, that man has no say in any matter 101%. Now, that's the post-structuralist, you know, line of thought. The only problem here is, you know, if this can be called a line of thought in the first place, is why would environment have a fixed meaning as a producer of mankind's actions slash reactions if nothing else has a definitive meaning? Asking the deep questions. So the thing is that the post-structuralist argument is that nothing has definitive meaning. And if you catch them out, you say, well, wait a second, what about originality? What about human language? How we convey our thoughts, our feelings, our history, how that affects us? You know, there has to be some originality in our actions and our definitions of life and how we view events, how we, you know, catalyze events, how we uh, react to events. You know, there is something definitive in life. There is something definitive in reality that we try comprehending reality. We don't make our own reality. We have our own perception and comprehension of reality, but reality exists. Reality is the medium through which we exist rather than, you know, reality existing because we want it to for existence sake. Now you confront a post-structuralist with all these arguments. You have the burden of proof with yourself, you know, because, you know, they're really nothing more, nothing less than, you know, over uh, thinking uh, critics of just about everything on the face of the earth. So their retreat usually is that environment shapes man's reactions. And this is something we perceive in the words or uh, in the works of MacLeod as well, that, you know, when he was confronted on the issue of the Sikh identity, and we'll get to Sikh identity very soon, MacLeod had to argue that the Guru Granth Sahib has no definitive meaning. Rather, Sikhi has no definitive meaning. Sikhi is a byproduct of environmental circumstances. Now, just a contradiction down here with this line of thought is that reality has no definitive meaning. So what is environment? Is environment a part of reality or does it exist outside what we call reality? <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, environment is, uh, let's say, the physical manifestation of reality. So if environment is the physical manifestation of reality and reality has no definitive meaning, so how then can environment have enough of a definitive meaning to allow post-structuralists to argue that environmental factors have influenced the Sikh identity. You could say that, okay, this is true that geography defi defines a culture, yeah? 
Yes. The difference between influence and definition is way too much. Yep. I mean, McLeod's argument was that the Jats, the Jats were pretty angry, pretty belligerent, and that's why Guru Arjan decided to, you know, allow them to retain arms and you know, subsequent gurus succeeded in turning the Jats against the Mughals. That's what his argument was, that the gurus were pretty much troublemakers. Well, and, maybe in the eyes of, eyes of the states they were, the Mughal yep. states, I mean. And this was something Sardar Kapoor Singh noted at the time, was that, you know, why are you looking at Sikh ideology through, you know, the states' lenses? And this was something which Howard Zinn actually noted as well. Now, of course, I've said this before, Zinn was a leftist, but Zinn had a point when he said that, you know, when you study a historic movement, when you study a historic personality, you got to look at reality through their eyes, you know, rather than the eyes of their detractors. Well, I think that's what history is. I think we have talked about it, that uh, imagine if uh, Hitler had won the Second World War, how would we as kids read history today in our, in our school? Hmm. Hmm. But the fact is that environmental factors only come into play maybe 25% of the time. The other remainder is usually the individual's own interaction with reality. So reality does have a definitive scope in history. You know, it has a definitive scope in human life. It may not have that for post-structuralists, but it does for other normal humans. And this is what many scholars today are arguing, you know, like Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, that the nihilism, the negativity which post-structuralism is, you know, bringing to academic life, it's also seeping into, you know, non-academic life as well. You know, people are becoming depressed because if reality is not definitive, then life has no meaning. Except religion, faith says life has meaning. So moving on... <clears throat> Post-structuralism continues with its offense against meaning, and nowhere is this more evident than in the field of, you guessed it, Sikh studies. And this was something underlined by James R. Lewis in the mid to uh, late 90s when, uh, you know, he refuted Obro's book as well, along with several other Sikh scholars. In the latter part of the 20th century, it has been forcefully brought home to us that despite our best efforts to be as neutral and as objective as possible, we inevitably bring certain presuppositions to the tasks of understanding. And Lewis also pinpoints the fact that there is no solid evidence, statistical or otherwise, to substantiate other than the utility of more sophisticated jargon that non-Sikh scholars, non-Sikh uh, scholars who are post-structuralists or Sikh scholars who are post-structuralists, are by some divine writ more impartial the non-post-structuralist Sikh scholars or non-Sikh scholars. There just isn't. Even okay. an idiot who keeps up with the fields of, you know, hermeneutics, philosophy of science, and generally science itself knows that any science will always be in ferment. There is no singular solid pritigam which can be subscribed to claim total neutrality. However, there is one thing in favor of Sikh scholars who are studying their own tradition that they're more familiar with the doctrinal aspect of the tradition than a non-Sikh. Now, of course, post-structuralists can't tolerate this. If there is no meaning to reality, then why would there be meaning to religion and its interpretation of reality? 
then why would there be meaning to post-structuralism itself? Now, that's the contradiction they've never been able to answer. You do realize that all those words, more than half of them are like flying right above my head. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is that the audience we are targeting today is a bit more uh, affluent than the people who usually listen to us. And there was quite a lot of pressure on us actually not to do this, not to do this episode. Yep, I, I don't, do know that one yet. Yep. So essentially what I've actually said, and I'll put it in simple words, is this. So when the theory, when the principal framework of these, uh, who we call the post-structuralist scholars in the field of Sikh studies was called out in the 90s by, you know, the rest of the Sikh world and uh, its scholars who are not the post-structuralists, what all these scholars did, like uh, McLeod, Pashora, Oberoi, Doniger, uh, Jacobish, I think that's her name, countless more of these scholars, all of them just got together, you know. And uh, so, you know, scholars like Rajiv A. Kapoor, McLeod, Pashora Singh, Gurinder Singh Man of USA, Doris Jacobish, Wendy Doniger, Oberoi, and uh, Mark Jurgen Smear, they all got together pretty much and claimed that, you know, Sikhs who are actually refuting their work. Now, the thing is in science, any form of science, there is a theory, a hypothesis. You propose it, someone else is going to reject it. That's how science progresses. What do you it agree? Does. Yeah, it does. Right. So this lot, though, they got together and released these massive uh, elaborate and fanciful statements that, their mode of scholarship, which they called Western scholarship. And it was actually exposed by Professor Noel Quentin King and, uh, you know, James Lewis that, you know, this is a lie. But at the time, they claimed that they were undertaking scholarship through a Western means. And all the Sikhs and non-Sikhs answering them were nothing more than extremists and fundamentalists. Oh, wow. What a platform to start on. I mean, Jurgen Smear has actually uh, released statements in the past in his books that uh, Sikh studies in the Punjab is uh, very traditional-minded and defined by orthodoxy. And Lewis actually uh, questions this line of thought. He actually asks, well, then, you know, what evidence do you have that, you know, traditional-minded orthodoxies prevent Sikh academics from progressing in their chosen field? You know, what, what impartial, what empirical evidence do you have that orthodoxy prevents progression in this field? Yes, there is a reaction from time to time, but that reaction is based on the fact that you lot are doing nothing more, nothing less than inciting a reaction, a backlash, by giving, you know, elaborate uh, statements and presenting assertions as proof without any evidence to claim that Sikhi is nothing more, nothing less than a syncretic tradition, which has no relevancy in today's world. How do you differentiate between uh, reaction and critique? I mean, that's the thing. See, we had the Salman Rushdie affair. You remember that book burning and all that? The fatwa, death threats and everything, yeah. Yep. I believe that came at the wrong time. Okay. Because it gave all these scholars or self-declared scholars and authors like Kushwan Singh the opportunity to turn around and start painting their detractors, their critics, in the same light as the people who actually reacted against Rushdie. 
Yeah, 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 it makes sense. I mean, when the Rushdie affair happened, look, what were the three prominent words which were coming out at the time? Fundamentalist, traditionalist, orthodoxy. These were the three words which pretty much saw him go into security that, you know, there are traditional minded people who consist of Islamic orthodoxy and the fundamentalists among them are actually opposed to Salman Rushdie. This, this was what was actually printed in the papers at the time. So I taking so. these words, the uh, emotions, the sentiments attached with these words, that's exactly how these so-called scholars of Sikh studies paint their critics to silence them. Yeah, so it's the the first step. You have to demonize your, your adversaries. Yep. So traditional-minded is a euphemism for fundamentalism. Orthodoxy, it seems, is a euphemism for Sikh masses. By implication, what these learned intellectuals are alleging that unless you agree with them in their school of thought, you're an extremist. Now, something which Lewis pointed out, and this is something you will be uh, interested in hearing as well. Contrary to the cry of neutrality and a reversion to traditionalist scholarship, that is, you know, pre-Singh Sabha, and we will get to Singh Sabha soon as well, these scholars are following an already established pattern. And, okay, so now this is where you're going to be shocked as well. Now, do you want to know who established this pattern first? Uh, do. These scholars are following an already established pattern first set by British Orientalists studying Sikhs. Oh, surprised. Not. So the people who are telling us decolonization, pre-Singh Sabha, pre-Tatkalsa, pre-Sikh Reformation, pre-Colonial Sikhi, all the nuances, all the words, all the research they're actually claiming to be their own, they're actually just borrowing from British Orientalists. And despite their pleas to the contrary, despite their cry of decolonization, they have only resurrected past colonial specters. Now, here's the irony. Post-structuralists in the field of Sikh studies contend that we must decolonize ourselves. Yet they're still pushing the colonial agenda themselves. A crucial example of this is that a majority of them rely on Ernest Trump's Ernest Trump's antithetical and assertion-based analysis of the Sri Guru Granth Sahib, rather than studying the canon themselves to formulate an impartial, yes, I'm saying impartial here because they're not impartial, an impartial conclusion for their own works regarding the relationship of the Guru Granth Sahib to the Sikh community. Now, from the onset of the 20th century onwards, we have Professor Sahib Singh, Dr. Daljeet Singh, Dr. Ganda Singh, Gyanji Gurdath Singh, Pai Veer Singh, Professor Gurmukh Singh, Pai Karam Singh, historian Gyanji Dath Singh, Dr. Jod Singh, Dr. Balvant Singh, Tello, Professor Noel Q. King, James R. Lewis, Dr. J.S. Garewal, who have studied and proven the authenticity and validity of the Guru Granth Sahib as the Sikh and then as well as the scriptural catalyst around which the Sikh community and the Sikh life revolves. But... Here's the problem which uh, post-structuralists have. Because these scholars do not rely on post-structuralisms to argue that reality has no definitive meaning, their works are roundly dismissed. Now, you know, you'll be surprised that, you know, the allegations made against the Guru Granth Sahib, you know what McLeod did? He did something clever. Rather than, you know, concentrate, and this is what Lewis actually pointed out as well, 
if you want to study Islam, what do you look at first? The Quran, the Hadiths and everything. Yep. So the relationship of the Quran to the community and the effect and influence it has had on the community's development and evolution over time. If you want to study Christianity, what do you look at first? The ancient texts, not the, not the modern Bible. Yep. If you want to study Judaism, what do you look at first? Uh, no, man. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> okay, so I know I'm getting repetitive down here, but the thing is, coming back to the main point, the Sikhs are not an ethnicity. The Sikhs are not a biological, you know, or in any way a race or a set of people who can be defined by physical traits. Rather, the Sikhs are a faith-based community, a community united by observance of and belief in fundamental principles. And these principles are housed in the Guru Granth Sahib, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if McLeod was to study the authenticity of the Guru Granth Sahib, you know, all the scholars I named, they actually proved the veracity and authenticity of the Guru Granth Sahib. Now, McLeod was unable to provide a refutation to their works, a rebuttal to their works. So he actually sidestepped the matter altogether easily. And this is a pattern followed by Oberoi, followed by Pashora Singh, Gurinder Singh Man, USA, Donegar, all of them, you know, and the countless new ones they have spawned today. They allege that the Guru Granth Sahib, we have obviously discussed them as 1245 manuscript and what Pashora alleged down there. The second allegation is that the Guru Granth Sahib was never given any guruship or sanctification by the Gurus, rather it was the Khalsa which made it Guru for more comprehension. Hmm. For more uh, cohesion, sorry, not comprehension. So what this allows them to do is say that, look, this is what we believe to be fact. And people think that what they're saying is that this is evidence. What the evidence is, is never discussed. And they just sidestep the primary, the primary role, the primacy of the Sri Guru Granth Sahib just like that, by saying that, you know, the Khalsa made it guru. It was never made guru by the gurus. It's just another text. We don't need to look at it there. And they sidestep the issue straight away. Mm -hmm. A scripture is a faith's lifeblood. So if you're not going to look at the scripture, if you're not going to look at the canon, how then can you assess you know, what do you want to say about the faith and partially as well? For us, there's another point that the language used is still spoken today, so there's no room for interpretation. <laughs> and these guys are aware of it. These guys are aware of it. That's why they try sidestepping these issues straight away by making these, you know, elaborate, uh, you know, elaborate. And I guess they would uh, call anyone who tries, uh, you know, critiquing their comments as being extremist or a fundamentalist. No, I think that's a very postmodernist approach to it. Now, if you don't agree with me, then you are the you are the evil, you are the racist, sexist, misogynist, whatever. Yep. So common sense dictates that a whole body of relevant evidence be studied before adopting a stance on any position, particularly you know, one on as something as sensitive as religion. So what Lewis argued back in the nineties was this: Why is it that only in the case of Sikhi is the exception made to not study how and why the Shri Guru Granth Sahib influenced Sikh development from Guru Nanak onwards. That's when, you know, obviously the nascent version of the Guru Granth Sahib was made. 
if it is generally accepted, and yes, it is that Sikhs are not an ethnicity but a faith-based community, then why the aversion to accepting the canonical authority of the Shri Guru Granth Sahib? Why is it that only Trump's initial and superficial analysis of the Sikh scripture, which has been refuted multiple times through history, why is it that only that makes the cut to judge the alleged, and I'm saying this again, the alleged, not the real or fact-based approach, but the alleged in the inauthenticity of the Sikh canon? Well, they, they have an agenda. That, that, that's a single sentence answer. That's definitely the. That's definitely true. There seems to be an agenda down here because they're very selective in the sources they utilize as well. You know, like I was telling you, this uh, individual who claims that the few texts you know written who they claim uh, were prominent uh, personalities associated with the guru that they will only uh, study their texts because they only understood Sikh tradition as well. And I asked one of them, so. Uh, do you trust Kessler Singh Shimber's works? And they're like, yes, we definitely do. And I asked them, so is it accurate 100% in this idea? So I asked them that, you know, there's a part in there where Bernard Singh hangs uh, Majbi, who had the audacity to sit among the Jats in Langar. And I asked him that, do you believe in that? And uh, <laughs> nope. <laughs> I retreat and I'm still waiting for an answer. It's, a, it's the same thing that there was a, a video I uh, saw a few days ago that a farmer actually brought groundwater from an area that was fracked and a politician made a promise that it's not harmful at all it's safe to drink and he said here's the water drink it and I didn't he ran <laughs> now take for example this most contemporary and primary sources agree that the Guru Granth Sahib was given guruship by Guru Gobind Singh Ji the absence of this fact in a minority of sources does not in any way substantiate that is provide evidence that the Guru never did this. Now, textual analysis calls for studying the author and their times, internal evidence of the text and how the text's content was influenced by the time it was produced in. Within faith-based studies such as Sikh studies, a fourth category of doctrinal consistency and match also allows us to verify how the text in question relates, you know, to Sikhi and Sikh theology. Irrespective of historical facts, the internal evidence from within the Guru Granth Sahib establishes that, you know, the Guru Granth Sahib had centrality in Sikh life from the onset of Sikhi. Pothi Parmeshwar Kathau, Shabad Guru Surat Tanchela, that last Shabad is by Baba Nanak. So, you know, Shabad Guru had a primacy in Sikh life from the onset of Sikhi. That's the internal evidence from the Guru Granth Sahib itself. Now, correct. these Shabads were written prior to the Khalsa. Are we agreed on this? Prior to the finalization of Khalsa, I would say. Yep. So the understanding of this fact, even until the 19th century, where Sikhs were at the apex of their political and social powers, was that the Gurus were personifications of the Guru Granth Sahib. And the same mandate was passed down to the Khalsa by Guru Gobind Singh Ji. And a potent relation of this is provided by Ratan Singh Pangu in the Sri Gurpant Prakash, uh, where he details the Battle of Jamkor. And obviously, Pangu wrote prior to the Singh Sabha, just in case someone missed that. <laughs> okay. Yep. Because, you know, the reality today is that these people, anything, all the sins on the face of the earth can be laid at the Singh Sabha's door according to them. 
I, I mean, I'm surprised that no one's actually come up with the theory as to, you know, that the coronavirus must also be the handiwork of the Singh-Sabha. Well, some Singh-Sabha members were actually soldiers, they used to be, and they, there's a possibility they were posted in Shanghai. There's a link there. <laughs> okay, so let's not give them any ideas. So, on the <laughs> other hand, we have multiple European accounts from the 18th century onward, which... You know, provide evidence of the primacy and supremacy of the Shri Guru Granth Sahib and Sikh life. Once again, and I'm repeating myself, this was before the Singh Sabha. However, all this body of evidence still does not stop the post-structuralists from claiming that the Khalsa made the Guru Granth Sahib Guru to form greater cohesion among itself. Now, McLeod was caught out in this particularly when he argued that the Khalsa went to its ideological opponents who deleted the so-called... Uh, Sanatan verses from the Kartarpuri Bir, while the version with the Khalsa itself, the Bano Bir, still had, had, has those Shabads. So the stupidity is right in front of you. So it's pretty much saying that, you know, the Khalsa went to the, you know, Saudis at Kartarpur, uh, Baba Varpak Singh, and said, oh, look, you're our enemy. Here, delete these verses. And Baba Varpak Singh was like, yeah, sure, you're my enemy. I'm going to listen to you. Here, I've deleted those verses. And the Khalsa comes back and it's got the uh, Bano version with itself. And it's like, you know what? This Bano version has those Shabbats, but hey, what the hell? Let's just leave those Shabbats in there. We got them deleted from the Kartarpuri Bir. Bolo Satana And the stupidity is right there in front of you. The whole uh, idiot uh, aspect of this affair. And uh, now in the early 90s, given the interest in Sikh studies after, you know, particularly after 1984, Harjot Oberoi sidestepped the entire need to study the Guru Granth Sahib to formulate a nuanced understanding of Sikhi and the Sikhs by three clever assertions. Clever because they disallowed him from altering his stance. So these assertions are part and parcel of post-structural and orientalist presumptions. Now, Lewis explains that this sidestepping, contrary to claims of you know, decolonization, is rooted in the colonial mentality of, you know, positing evangelical supremacy. The only thing which has changed is that Orientalists made no secret of this fact. Our current lot are following them blindly while arguing faith in general has no definitive meaning because reality doesn't. So put simply, for the Orientalists, Christ on the cross was supreme. Today, it is Western atheism which is supreme. So... You know, all these prophets of impartiality who are saying that, you know, Sikhs who uh, defend their own tradition, Sikh scholars are uh, fundamentalists and extremists. These guys are no less themselves. So these assertions which Oberoi voiced. A, the Shri Guru Granth Sahib is amorphous in meaning, which is, you know, another way of saying non-definitive. And neo-Sikhs, which are, you know, Sikhs uh, who, and, oh, well, actually, you know what? Wait, and I'll get to neo-Sikhs as well. And neo-Sikhs cannot reference it to spot their views because they're taking words out of context. Right? Mm, so you understand that first one? Classic. Classic. B, the Guru Granth Sahib is the foremost of similar litanies offered throughout the centuries and all others need to be looked at. And C, Early Sikh tradition did not have a Khalsa centralization identity. That is, the Khalsa identity is a modern construct, and in the past, you had Udasis, Nirmalas, Nanak Pantis, and Narakaris. Now, here's the problem with point A. 
Obroi details of Darsing Vahira's Khalsa Taram Shastra is some essential Sikh text. Now, who was Vahira? A disciple of his Guru Sodhi Singh. Who was Sodhi Singh? The descendant of <laughs> Pirthi Chand. <laughs> now, you see the Meena connection down here? Of course, I do. And, you know, these guys actually have a beard in the Delhi National Museum where they show Sodhi Singh worshipping uh, Mahakal and Kalika on the front. And I mean, oh my goodness, the amount of mental acrobatic Sikhs do trying to justify that picture is just amazing. Just damn amazing. It never ceases to amaze you, man. It never ceases to amaze you. So, you know, Singh was a descendant of Pirthi Chand. So why has it never been established that what Vahira conveyed to the Sikhs as learned from his Guru Pan Singh is doctrinally confirming to the Sikh doctrinal stance in the Guru Granth side? Where is that research? And this is the very same problem with amateur Sikh historians on social media today. Their research references tradition, but what is the validity of the tradition? Hmm. Now, Further on, Obroy references Vahira to say that Guru Nanak was seen as an avatar by the historic Sikhs who he calls Sanatan Sikhs. Now, <laughs> okay. based, yep, now listen to this. Now, based on the output of the Amritsar Singh Sabha, one institute, one body, he attempts to argue that pre-Lahore Singh Sabha, Sikhi is false. So when you look at any movement, you must look at four factors. Number one, the ideology of the original movement, which you know, of course, is Sikhi, and whether any revivalist slash reformatory movement such as the Lahore Singh Sabha altered it or augmented it, that is, changed it or made it stronger. Two, what practices defined the original movement and whether the revivalist slash reformatory movement restored those practices on a doctrinal basis? Number three, what compelled the revivalist slash reformatory movement to arise and how it succeeded in its mission? Number four, how do alterations, if any, brought about by the reform slash revivalist movement under study compare with the early Preston movement, which is initial Sikhi? So with these four factors clear, and uh, for the listeners, write them down. You can always put us on repeat. We can now see why post-structuralists and the pushers of Sanatan Sikhi dispute the requirement for studying the Shri Guru Granth Sahib in relation to the field of Sikh studies to authenticate Sikh doctrinal positions. There is no statistical data to evince the claim of Snatan Sikhs being widespread or even ideologically prominent in Sikh history prior to the mid to late 19th, 19th century period. Within Guru Granth Sahib, you know, we have evidence that Guru Nanak disowned Shri Chand and his Udasis. But... Once again, we have accepted historic texts born out of movements who claim a relationship with Sikhi rather than prove that relationship outside those texts. So in essence, the Udasis are claiming antiquity, you know, an old relation with Sikhi, but they only seem to have re-emerged into the picture during the last days of the Khalsa missiles. Now, of course, that is if we take the judicious position of scrutinizing historic texts and not accepting them blindly. Uh, regarding the Nirmalas, Jathedar Akali Deva Singh Ji Nihang of Tat Shri Keskar Saab, another Jathedar Akali Deva Singh Ji Nihang of Tat Shri Hazur Saab, same name, same period, 
the uh, royal houses of kapurthala kalsia freedkot jathedars of chamkorsa muktsar sab and even the buddha dal wrote petitions against the existence of the nirmalas in the late 19th century these are quoted in paramjit and nadars in the master's presence volume 1 the sikhs of hazur sahib and the jathedar of anandpur sahib went so far as to write which guru gave them saffron saffron is the color of dutt's house and not nanak or gobind singh's can they prove their past why why has this evidence not been considered before you know making grandiose statements based on a tradition which is claimed to have been widespread rather than proven as being widespread claim versus proven okay see so very deep so now on the issue of nanak pantis we have multiple mogul and persian records asserting to the vagueness of the term So then we come to the Narankaris. Now this is where the post-structuralists have shot off their own feet, particularly Oberoi. They claim that no conflict in identity existed prior to the Lahore Singh Sabha. So you know, remember fluidity of Sikh identity. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now you know Oberoi knew they capitalize on the fact that the Sikhs today have a aversion to the Narankari epithet. You know the name Narankari drives Sikhs you know pretty mad, excited. Yeah, the word. Yeah. Yep. Now, the reality is that there were two different Narankaris, the original Narankaris and the current Narankaris, who have no relationship with the old Narankaris. So, yet, you know, as the original Narankari history shows, the Narankaris were a revivalist movement, heavily opposed to the ambiguity, which is today labeled as Sanatan Sikhi. Baba Dial Singh or Dial Das openly opposed Maharaja Ranjit Singh's alliance of Brahmanical and shouted that baba nanak was a maftar gurbani holds that janamana mare na avena ja that in relation to akal purakh akal purakh is neither born nor dies and neither comes nor goes in essence then the theory of the hero as well as obroy hold no water when it judged against the doctrinal consistency of the guru granth sahib and the established practices of the guru era seek cited therein now where does this leave the amorphous nature of the guru granth sahib as obra and other post structuralists argue you know where mm mm-hmm. and the intellectual gutter i was going to use some softer words but yeah you used them so you see why the study of history is so critical in the field of seek studies you're telling me what i feel and what i think doesn't matters <laughs> actually yes i'm telling you that it does matter no no sikhi is what i define it to be i mean that is the dil saaf predicament and maybe we'll discuss that in the future as well <laughs> so uh, it, it's the relationship between me and god who are you to tell me what to do <laughs> now McLeod was one of the first so-called scholar of Sikh studies to resurrect the disused and refuted bogey of there being you know other litanies parallel to the Guru Granth Sahib. Take note that he never expanded upon his original uh, you know uh, hypothesis that the uh, Khalsa declared Guru Granth Sahib as guru. Well actually his original assertion cause he always claimed that that was the truth that the Khalsa declared Guru Granth Sahib as guru and not Guru Gobind Singh ji. 
Now, an important point here is that Guru Gobind Singh Ji declared that Guru Granth Sahib is Guru keeping in line with Guru Nanak's uh, uh, Shabads, which we mentioned earlier. So what are these other parallel litanies? The Dasam and Sarblo Granths. Whatever their alleged authenticity or veracity, by no means, though, should their existence detract from the centrality of the Guru Granth Sahib. Furthermore, from time to time, all such secondary grants need to be adjudged in the light of the doctrinal consistency and ideology of the Guru Granth Sahib to prove their Guru origin, rather than rely on the framework of uh, this is accepted tradition, Babaji, or oral Sampradayak tradition. So really what the fact is that, you know, when they say there are other grants beside the Guru Granth Sahib, they always try hiding behind that excuse to not study the Guru Granth Sahib. Hmm. Now, on the issue of identity, let's, you know, expand further. Baba Dial Singh was the maternal great-grandson of Pai Pagwan Singh, who was the treasurer and trusted confidant of Guru Gobind Singh Ji. Later generations of the family prior to Baba Dial Ji removed themselves from Sikh affairs, disgusted at the corruption overtaking Sikh institutes. They were opposed to the Udasis, and in fact, by Rata Singh Ji, a son of the Baba was invited to the Kaltat to provide an account of the original Khalsa Ardas, given that the family still held records written by Pai Pagwan Singh Ji as to what the true Sikh Ardas was. So the whole Narankari, the original Narankari framework existed prior to the Singh Sabha of Lahore. And it was based on preserving the fundamental and pristine Khalsa identity and ideology of Guru Nanak to Guru Gobind Singh Ji. So this disproves the post-structuralist view that Sikhi prior to the Lahore Singh Sabha consisted of a fluid identity. It never did. We have the Narankaris as the early proponents of retaining, and I emphasize retaining a distinctive Guru Bekrifid Sikh identity from the late 1700s onwards, we then have the Nam Taris. Dr. Trilochan Singh did a whole study on them as well as Dr. Ganda Singh. Today we have fanboys sulking on social media if someone disproves their claim that the Nam Taris once did Havans. Later generations of Nam Taris did, but not the original ones under Baba Ram Singh, who repeatedly emphasizes in his letters that the Sikhs reject Brahmanical dismantling of Sikh's identity and become extreme in preserving their Sikh essence. Again, this was prior to the Lahore Singh Sabha. Mm, a question. Yes. This term, fluidity of Sikhi or Sikh fluidity, has been used over and over again. If Sikh identity was fluid, then how come the Mughal state declared that all the Sikhs have been killed? Hey. I'm actually getting to this point. I'm getting to this point. You have preempted me here, but it's a pretty damn smart preemption down here. And it's a very biting question, which none of these post-structuralists and Sanatani Sikhs have been able to answer. Yeah. My point is that if, if there's somebody sitting in, let's say, some public office, he can't say, okay, it's the 1700s or whatever. Yeah, early yep. 1700s. And we have got the order to kill all Sikhs. How shall we identify them? Now, before I answer that, we need to ask ourselves another question. Did Guru Gobind Singh Ji intend for a central non-fluid Khalsa identity? I would say no. Yes, he intended a centralized Khalsa identity. Not a fluid identity, but a centralized static Khalsa identity. Yeah, non-fluid, no. 
that is, I mean, I guess from a particular perspective, you can argue that, you know, but what I'm saying is that they are saying that the Guru intended a fluid Khalsa identity, which meant that, you know, there was no such thing as the modern Khalsa. But what we are actually arguing is that the Khalsa had a non-fluid identity. So, and we have evidence of this as well. So first and foremost, we have a Hukam Nama from the Guru's own hands written on 24th May 1699 and dispatched to the Sikhs of Kabul in which the Guru explicitly states, and this is Gobind Singh Mansukhi's translation uh, published by Sarjit Singh Gandhi, the Satguru is all pervasive. The Sangats of Kabul are protected by the Guru. The Guru is very pleased with you. You are to take the nectar of the Kanda from five Sikhs. Keep unshorn here. This is our identity. Do not discard the Kach and Kirpan from your person, even for a moment. Always retain the iron kara on, kara on your wrists. Two times a day, comb your hair and keep them clean. The entire Sangat is forbidden from consuming halal and other sacrificial meat. I forbid you from consuming tobacco in any form. Renounce the company of those who slay their daughters and ostracize them from among yourselves. After them, ostracize those who permit the cutting of their children's hair. Do not associate with the Minas, Masants, and the followers of Ram Rai. Read Gurbani and forever remember Vaheguru, Vaheguru. Always follow the Sarhet of your Guru. Remember that if you do this, then I'll be pleased with you. So that's the first evidence written in the Guru's own hand. Second, we also have the Nishane Panj, which is written in Persian, credited to Guru Gobind Singh Ji as well. We then have the Sahajitari, the Hetanam of Pai Mani Singh Ji, signed by the 10th Guru, and uh, I think it's at Patiala University today. It was discovered by Dr. Trilochan Singh. We have the contemporary eyewitness accounts of a Mughal spy, and this account was uh, discovered by Dr. Ganda Singh, which states that uh, Guru Gobind Singh Ji initiated the first five Sikhs into the Khalsa. This spy was actually present when you know this event happened. And what he says is that after initiating them into the Khalsa, the Guru emphasized the distinctives of, distinctives of Guru Nanak's thought and ordered all Sikhs to break away from Hindu and Islamic fundamentals to prevent the regression of Sikhi. And the spy also notes that many Hindus got up and stormed away, saying that this young boy has insulted centuries of our tradition. So did Guru Nanak. Yep. Uh, then we have the Shri Guru Katha of Pai, Jeevan Singh Ji Shahid, who we know was an eyewitness and who brought Guru Tegh Bhadra's head back from Delhi, which mentions a distinct Sikh identity made up of the Panjikakars and more importantly, different practices and rights to all other belief systems of the time, including Sanatani and Islamic Soch. We then have the Shri Gur Soba of Kavi Senapati, another eyewitness which records how a you know, fiasco, a fight broke out in Delhi between Sikhs and Brahmins and Khatris. These Brahmins and Khatris were in the habit of prancing about as Sikhs when the Guru uh, dispatched five Sikhs with Khandabhate the Amrit. And these Brahmins and Khatris created a conflict in the streets given their anger with the Guru over a distinct Sikh identity. So first they denied that the Guru could ever do such a thing and then later they became uh, you know, quite angry, quite upset that they had been exposed and caught out when they realized that the Guru had actually you know, uh, emphasized a distinct Sikh identity. So we also find evidence of this in you know, contemporary Persian and Mughal records. We then have, you know, Farsi and Rajput accounts which mention that Baba Banda Singh and the Sikhs retain a very distinct Khalsa identity, the basic of which is a hair suit, which is a hairy appearance. 
We then have okay. contemporary European observers who highlighted the distinct Sikh identity. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, like, you know, we were discussing Major Brown. He mentions that Sikhs go and take Khandebhat Amrit. He was writing in 1783. They become initiated into the Khalsa when other five Sikhs initiate them into the Khalsa. They drink uh, sherbet from an iron bell. They grow their hair long. They wear a steel bangle on their wrist and invite the Guru in their engagements. That's what uh, he wrote in 1783. So this also puts pay to the myth that the Kara was a Singh Sabha innovation. Hmm. So almost 100 years before the Singh Sabha. More than that. So come down to the late 19th century, we have the Dastar ul Amal written at Takht Hazur Sahib, which is supposedly a Sanatan Sakitat, because the Singh Sabha was unable to penetrate that far outside the Punjab. The Amal mentions the five Kakars, the centralized Khalsa identity, questions the existence of Nirmalas and those who claim to be exempt from Kakars after entering the Khalsa fold. It's essentially quite interesting to, to even entertain that claim that we are exempted. So why? There you go. I mean, the Dastar al-Amal actually questions that. And this is a manuscript, but this is a, actually a document which is written in the late 19th century. And if the argument is made that the, uh, you know, Takshri Hazur Sahib is the Sanatani Takta because the Singh Sabha never reached there, well, then you have to take that evidence into account as well that there was a centralized Khalsa identity at the time and there was no fluidity in that identity. Well, uh, and the question I ask about uh, the state-sponsored genocide of Sikhs in, in the 1700s, I think that that alone is enough. Yep, that alone is enough. I mean, so getting on to that question then, so on the issue of, you know, the fluid Sikh identity, let's just continue. If reality is as post-structuralist state, that is, you know, the Sikh identity has no defining framework, then why the history of anti-Sikh purges? What was the criteria used to annihilate the Khalsa, first of all? So Bahadur Shah ordered all long-haired Hindus and Muslims to cut off their hair. Zakaria Khan ordered the execution of any Sikhs retaining long hair and other symbols of their faith and professing belief in Nanak. Nader Shah and Durani posited a similar criteria for weeding out the Sikhs. If indeed there was some fluid system of identity called Sanatan Sikhi, then why the widespread execution of Sikhs and destruction of Sikh heritage and property on the below criteria? So, what I mean by the below criteria is this. this is, these are just from my notes. Belief in Guru Nanak, his successors, and the Guru Granth Sahib. This was the criteria used by Lakpat Rai in 1746 during the Chotaka Lukara. Why this criteria of identity was fluid? Did, okay. the, yep, did the Mughal Rajput coalition go from door to door with a questionnaire which if answered wrong identified as a Sikh and worthy of execution? Why was no similar treatment ever meted out to so-called Sanatan Sikhs, given that this Kalukara only explicitly targeted Sikhs? So this proves yeah. the point that Sikh identity was never fluid. Okay, this, this is exactly what I'm going to say. So Lakpatrai and Jaspatrai, mm. both were Hindus, yeah? Yes. So they would have better understanding of this Sanatan term better than the Muslims? Yep. So if there was such thing as fluid Sikh identity, do we have any evidence that they actually executed Sanatan Sikhs or something? No, there is no evidence. Now, 
Did they Rappen, execute uh, yeah. or persecute the Udasis or Emirates? Nope, no evidence. And I'll get to that oh. part as well. Now, okay. Ratan Singh Pangu, based on his own eyewitness observation, narrates how when the Khalsa sought refuge in the Shivalak Hills during the Chota Kalukara, the civil population of Hindus and Muslims fell upon it and slew Sikhs left, right and center. What was their standard to identify a Sikh if not the Sikh identity? Was any similar treatment meted out to so-called Snatan Sikhs if Sikh identity was that fluid as Oberoi asserts? No, it never was because the reality is that those mobs which fell upon the Sikhs knew how to identify a Sikh from their Kakars and their identity straight away. Hmm. I mean, if the identity was fluid, why weren't they killing themselves that, oh, you're a Sikh, no, you're a Sikh, no, you're a Sikh. Rather, they turned against the Sikhs. So you're telling me there was no that, uh, the famous office scene, handguns pointing at each other. <laughs> no, 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 no. Handguns only pointing at Sikhs. Hell. <laughs> okay. Contemporary Persian and Rajput accounts mention the unique facets of Sikh physicality, identity-wise, and how these became a marker for imperial forces during the fall of Banda Singh and the First Sikh Republic to identify the Sikhs with and kill them. Camp followers of Abdul Samad Khan record how low-caste women were also captured and then beheaded to falsely, emphasis on falsely, claim that multiple Sikh youth whose beards were about to grow had been preemptively slain by the state. Yeah, uh, it's actually true that even oh, in the times when, when our heads were sold, they would actually kill young kids. I said, this is a Sikh kid, not tie a jula in the front. I said, it's a boy's head. Oh, yep. And there are records, you know, which mention that if there was some doubt on the identity, they would chuck a kara at the front, a kirpan, a kacha, a ganga, or, you know, even grab a gutka side. So moving on, during the time of Guru Hargobind, Shah Jahan ordered the destruction of a Sikh, Taramsal, and the astro of Sikhs from Lahore, based on their identity. This indicates that the Sikhs retained a, you know, distinct appearance even back then. So... Where does fluid Sikh identity fit into all this? I'm trying really hard not to crack a joke, so I'll just stay silent. <laughs> and I'm sure there will be some uh, listeners listening to this trying not to crack a pejorative, but they will continue listening, probably swear at us at the end. So during the era of Guru Tegbah, their Mughal sources and intelligence couriers note that Aurangzeb provided special instructions to deal with the Sikhs, their religious sites were demolished. They were identified in public and executed while their property was confiscated. The criteria, again, was one of physical, physical emphasis on physical and philosophical identity. Again, doesn't this rebut the notion of a fluid Sikh identity? Were they handing out like, like, a, like a questionnaire or something? I think they must have been doing it, eh? like, hello, pa ji, hello, pen ji, I think that's what they must have been doing, you know. No, there was a simple way. You could just greet them, and if they say, Ram, Ram, or Asala, Walikram, or Sasrikal, say, gotcha. <laughs> you know, like the marker, Polo finger, marker, marker, and someone shares that Polo, you know, why grew, why grew, Khalsa, yeah, get him now. <laughs> And got him. <laughs> yep. Now, you know, 
Contemporary historic sources show varying degrees of familiarity with the Sikh essence and existence. So why do they not make any mention of fluid Sanatan identity Sikhs who, if the fiction is to be believed, were handed control of Gurdwaras by the Khalsa Sikhs who retreated into the wilderness of Punjab? So, Chota Kalukara, precipitated by Rai. That Kalukara led to, you know, changes in Punjabi which continue to this day. Good or Jagri became a Rory as Gur sounded too much like Guru. Are we to believe in light of this profound familiarity with the Sikhs that the Rai, that, you know, the Rai and his uh, cronies were not aware of a fluid Sikh identity and left the Snatan Sikhs well alone? If, if we even accept for argument's sake that Snatan Sikhs existed back then, then doesn't this necessarily indicate that they betrayed and were party to the genocide of their own brethren? Yeah, that's textbook treason. Yep. So these queries and evidence which is contrary to the post-structuralist viewpoint is explicitly derided, disparaged, and ignored by them. It is a tragedy, though, that Sikhs have not built an ever-expanding archive of their own past and discoveries relating to it. As Lewis observes, there are discriminatory elements imposed upon the Sikhs by their own academics who have their own political, religious, and social prejudices. Their treatment of Sikhi differs from the treatment of other faiths. So, now, first of all, the term Neo-Sikh was constructed as a slur by British missionaries and Orientalists who were unable to grasp Sikhi's innate adaptability, which allowed it to confront evangelical offensives. The term today, as you are well aware, is a pathological pejorative for anyone far removed from the Snapton school of thought. So Lewis questions why these scholars who use that slur do not lend the same slur to, say, uh, Protestants by calling them neo-Christians or Shias by declaring them neo-Sunnis. Rather mm. than break new ground, they're only relying on colonial perceptions to handicap Sikh studies. And while they're doing it, they're hypocritically crying decolonization. The amount of mental gymnastics or even their flexibility, man, I can't even comprehend it. So, on the issue of syncretism, Sikhi and Sikh identity are not syncretic. But if we accept the argument that defining beliefs do not form in a vacuum and retain some external influence, then why is the term syncretism solely used for Sikhi? Why is the same criteria not applied to Hinduism to call it a syncretism of Buddhism, Jainism, and Sravanism? Why is Islam not mentioned as syncretic amalgamation of Judaism Roman, uh, and Arab paganism? Why is Christianity not classified as a syncretism of Judaism, Roman paganism, and European polytheism? The logic seems to be that other faiths are greater than the sum of their parts, whereas Sikhi is less than equal to the sum of its parts. Uh, parts. Our overexcited Sikh scholars with Sardar Kapoor Singh being one unfortunate prominent example have taken the term syncretism in some unitarianistic sense, and they have produced multiple tracts highlighting this one fact alone without understanding that British missionaries and Orientalists lent us this term to declare our invalidity as a world faith. Hmm. Then we come to martial race, that the Khalsa is a martial race. 
Building upon the singular theory, Polish structuralists have argued against a centralized Sikh identity by beating the drum of Sanatan Sikhi, and they have given us elaborate theories of how the British lent Sikhs their Kakars through the Singh Sabha Lahore and gave us modern Sikhism. So, somewhat laughably, they straddle both points. Sikhs are martial, Sikhs are non-martial, with the modern consensus being now that Nihangs are warriors and non-Nihangs are not. So this again belies proven history, which shows that the gurus expected all Sikhs to be warriors in times of need. The misnomer of martial race was deliberately given to keep Sikhs away from administrative and political occupations, which would have allowed them an eventual say in matters of power. How successfully it worked can be seen by the fact that Sikhs lost everything and received nothing during the partition of the subcontinent. Once Remember. again, yep. Soldiers always obey orders. They don't issue orders. No. Once again, Sikhi and Sikh identity was the common criteria used to deprive Sikhs of their rights with the martial race misnomer. Tragically, scholars of Sikh studies missed this point to instead attack the Lahore Singh Sabha. So, now, this is my favorite one. And you know where I thought of this argument? Tell me. In the shower this morning. Well... A thing called shower thought exists. <laughs> okay. Oh God. Okay. So, oh, wait. Did you have that uh, eureka moment? Well, I had shampoo in my hair, so I guess in a way I actually did. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> most pressingly, it is argued today. Listen to this one. You're going to love this one. That a majority of gurdwaras were all in control of majority mahants from the Ranjit Singh era onwards. That the Mahants retained pristine Sikh doctrines, and that the British wanted to annihilate or dismantle these pristine Sikh doctrines. So, why then did the British allow the Mahants to continue in their role as administrative controllers of major Sikh institutes from 1846 onwards? Well, the answer is quite obvious. Doesn't this indicate that they were hand in glove with the British against the true non Snatan Sikhs? Why did the British expend such judicial effort on protecting them and granting them heavy financial, legal, and personal security, and all this while aiming to destroy Snat and secure the alleged true Sikhi of the months? Hmm. The, the contradiction is amazing. I mean, on one hand, they're saying that the months, the Snat and Sikhs are the true holders of Sikhi, that the British wanted to destroy them. And on the other hand, the British are actually telling them, no, look, you continue in the Gurdwaras. However, you know, it's commonly believed that half a million Sikhs died to liberate Gurdwaras from their controls. We have the Babarakalis who resorted to the bomb and the gun to deliver retribution to them for massacring Sikhs. So we're saying those months held a true Sikhi in their grasp, that the British wanted to destroy their true Sikhi. So why then did the British allow them to continue in Gurdwaras after 1846? Well, this is the point where they do start doing that mental gymnastics thing is. The Khalsa identity being under attack should come as no surprise given that the work of Orientalists is now continued by the proponents of Sanatan Sikhi with the aid of post-structuralist academics who litter the field of Sikh studies. It has been repeatedly argued throughout Brahminical texts attacking Sikhi that Guru Nanak, the progenitor Guru, was a pacifist and Guru Gobind Singh, the ultimate human Guru, an ardent, violent reactionary. Lewis observes that no shred of evidence has been furnished that Guru Nanak's attitude was no more passive than Guru Gobind Singh's was violent. Again, 
if the self-professed prophets of impartiality were to neutrally study the Guru Granth Sahib, they would see that Guru Nanak furnished the militant political fundamentals of the Khals. I think we have discussed it, discussed it in some earlier episode. And the biggest tra tragedy in all this is that our current scholars in the field of Sikh studies have been rendered apathetic by post-structuralism to the degree they have stopped seeking new sources for Sikh studies. Rather, existing sources are milked to the point of intellectual fatigue to argue they prove the veracity of some existing traditional practice. This is Sikh studies today. A <clears throat> hundred different papers looking at one singular element from 20 different angles which contribute nothing for the upkeep of the common Sikh other than the occasional migraine. The occasional migraine. The Sikh revivalist tradition, which started from the Narankaris and culminated in the Lahore Singh Sabha, is routinely ignored to deride the Lahore Sabha for all perceived sins on the face of the earth. Hmm. Authenticity of existing practices and secondary compositions to the Guru Granth Sahib are never proven but rather explained away with the recourse to Babaji believes in it, Samprada believes in it, this is tradition. Bolo Satanam Shri $100, please. $100. <laughs> there are no watchdogs established to annually report on what indeed is going on in Sikh academia and whether Sikh studies is benefiting the common Sikh or whether it has become a money-making scam for elitist ivory tower intellectuals. Hmm. Well, I, I think it's it's a let's say a toxic mixture of all of this, those things. The thing is that you know we need to sit down and reassess Sikhi, Sikh doctrines, and Sikh history away from British Orientalism. Now, the Orientalists were the first ones to say that. Uh, Sanatan Sikhi is valid Sikhi because the Singh Sabha Sikhs they were put down as being a martial. I mean, you know, if you look at Pai Khan Singh Nabba, he was a proficient boxer, he was, you know, a professional, uh, not professional, but a professional level wrestler, master of the sword, a very uh, good shot with the gun, able to use the Sikh chakar. The man was a walking, talking warrior. This is why they never attacked him openly. They knew that if they attacked him openly, he would break their faces straight away. I have a different question. Yep. Let's say Sikh and Sikh came, let's say, with Guru, Guru Nanak, let's say. Yep. What's the achievement of quote unquote Sanatan before Guru Nanak? Amazing, amazing. That is a good question. Oh, of course, they do claim there's nothing which means eternal. So, yes, what is their achievement before Guru Nanak? So, throughout the entire world history, can you give me a single instance where people have adopted a previously failed idea? No, 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 no. No, I can't think of any. People are more likely to adopt the ideas of the enemy if they, f they find them to be useful. Would you agree? 
Yes. So why why would Sikhs or let's say any guru try try to or even tell us to adopt an idea that has failed for the past let's say thousand years, maybe even more? You know, the Khalsa, the Singh Sabais, the Narankaris, Namtaris, all these revivalist movements came to be defined by violence, ouster, or expulsion. Hmm. Right? Most of their adherents were usually soldiers. (coughs) Reason being that they were sent to the front lines as martial race warriors. And the Sanatan Sikhs, who called themselves Sanatan Sikhs, like Arur Singh at Darbar Sahib, you know, who honored Dyer after the Jaliyawala Bagh massacre, they were all given prominent political positions, except the so-called, uh, you know, descendants of Sanatan Sikhi argued that their brand of Sikhi was the one the British intended to wipe out but there is no historic evidence for that. The British placed their ideological Snatani ancestors in positions of power among the Sikhs. Why? Why would the British give power to those who they wanted to dismantle unless, unless the guys fighting on the front lines were decisively were being led to their deaths while the guys at the back, the Snatanis, were chosen to replace the true Khalsa so the Sikhs would become docile. It's it's quite it's preferred that you let's say bribe a general rather than to fight the entire brigade, the brigade or something, you know? It's quite easy mm-hmm. comparatively. Yep. I mean if you read the history of the Kali movement, if you really look at those contemporary documents, even the months, you know, we mentioned majority months, including good months, bad months. All months had a legal recourse against the Kalis, provided by the British free of charge in courts. Yet, if they were enemy number one, if their brand of Sikhi was enemy number one for British Orientalists, then why were the British placing them in positions of power? Well, this question still needs to be answered, and not by us, actually. Well, yeah, obviously not by us. We have just put the challenge down. (laughs) You actually, you know, as case, you actually uh, thrown a grenade and remove uh, remove the pin and thrown a grenade. Now it's up to them what to do. (laughs) Well, I mean. From their logic, I mean, look, we looked at the post-structuralist logic. Their logic seems to be to uh, pop the pin, throw the pin, and run with the grenade in their hands. <laughs> it's a, it's a, no, it's, it's some Tom and Jerry shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is the circus of catastrophes, which is Sikh identity in academia. We need to furnish our own pro-Sikh, pro-Khalsa, pro-Guru Granth Sahib Sikh historians, Sikh intellectuals, Sikh scholars, and only then will we get out of this quagmire. Otherwise, the people who say we need to decolonize Sikhi are the same people who are continuing the colonization of Sikhi. When we finally decolonize Sikhi, 
is it not still going to be fluid? <laughs> the reality is that we can only set people thinking, but the amount of interest which was showing in this episode, I believe, you know, a majority of the comments, 93% of the comments were positive that go for it, we spot you. A very accurate percentage. Very accurate percentage. That is all for today. Remember the points we made next time you read Oberoi or any of these other scholars. Until next time, Vaheguru Ji Karakta. Thank you, Fateh. Thank you, Fateh.